0: Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We do desire the Lord to speak this morning, and we believe He does primarily through His Word. And that is what we're going to talk about this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Has God said? That is the question the serpent asked the first couple in the Garden of Eden. And tragically, they took the bait, plunging humanity into sin, something we will talk about next week. And the enemy continues to use that same tactic today. And continues to have great results both within and without the church. The Bible is just a book written by men, some say. No different than any other ancient or contemporary document. It contains some good advice. There are some motivational stories to be found here. You can discover some one-liners that will pick you up just when you need it the most, but nothing more. Plus it's full, of, it's full of errors. Perhaps those errors are intentional, changed by some well-meaning copyist in order to make it coincide with something else. Or maybe that error was in error. That is, it was not done intentionally, but just as it was copied through the years, it was done unintentionally. The bottom line is it cannot be trusted. Which means we can now pick and choose whatever we want to believe from the word of God and conclude that some is accurate and some is not. In fact, that's what the Jesus seminar did some years ago. Basically coming to the conclusion that the vast majority of what was in red in your New Testament in the gospels was not really said by Jesus. And what they did in a formal academic way many people continue to do in an informal and practical way on a daily basis. The end result is that we are now in authority over the Bible rather than the Bible being in authority over us. And therefore, we can decide what we are going to obey and what we are not going to obey. It is certainly no secret that cultural changes play into this in a significant way. If society believes something different from the Bible, then the answer seems to be to seek a way to change the Bible or discount it altogether. I suppose this is much easier than simply admitting that our lifestyle, our beliefs are not in accord with the Bible and it is they which need to change and not the Bible. And if the church wants to impact society, then we tend to gradually come to their view of what the Bible has to say. Isn't it ironic that we are now so sinful that we can turn the whole thing around, becoming the authority rather than submitting to the authority of God's revelation? Such is the nature of man that we have elevate ourselves and diminish God. But because we want to or claim to be the authority does not mean that we actually are. And so we are starting this series this morning called Doctrines That Define. And in this series, we are going to be looking at the fundamental doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. The doctrines that define who we are, the doctrines that must be held in order to be a genuine believer. Now, some will indeed scoff at the very idea of this. The very idea that we have some doctrines that define us. They will say that it is love that defines us, not doctrines. And if you want to be a genuine follower of Christ, you must be a lover of those around you. And certainly that is true. Others would argue that focusing on doctrine will merely result in a cold orthodoxy. Maybe believing the right things, but with no heart to live them out. And that is not my focus either. I will readily acknowledge that you can indeed hold the doctrines that we're going to talk about and not be a genuine follower of Christ. That is, you can subscribe to everything we're going to talk about in the next couple of months and yet not live them out and therefore not be a follower of Christ. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were very good at that. They held to a lot of sound doctrine. But Jesus had a lot of critical things to say about them. But these doctrines that define us rather than divide us. These are the things that we are united around. In an age in which we are divided among so many things, these are the things that we are united around. And that is why I'm preaching this series. Because we are divided over so many different things, even as Christians. Therefore, we need to come together and say, what are the elements? What are the basic truths? that we are united together around these truths that we hold and we're going to start this morning with the authority of the bible under the title has god said and we start here because if we do not hold this one everything else does not matter if we do not come to the conclusion that god has spoken and he has spoken in his word then because everything else i'm going to say comes from the bible We will discount all of that, and that is why we must start here. If God has not spoken in his word, then everything else we say will be of none effect. But if God has spoken through his word, then it is authoritative, and we must believe it and follow it. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, this classic text on the word of God. Paul writes, but as for you, he's writing to Timothy, of course, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from childhood you have acquainted you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now you will readily recognize this passage of scripture, not only from your past, but also from your current study in Sunday school. These are the theme verses for this unit one of our doctrines in Sunday school, and you are striving to memorize them. So yes, there will be some overlap in Sunday School and this series, but not a whole lot. Now, I wrote briefly in our newsletter this month summarizing Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary's article some years ago about the three tiers of doctrine. It is this first tier that we are studying in this series, that is those truths that must be believed in order to be an Orthodox Christian. The second tier of doctrines, we're not studying those, but the second tier of doctrines are those beliefs that we can disagree on and yet still be believers. That is, one believer and another can disagree on them, but in this second tier, the disagreement is so significant that in all likelihood we are not in the same church and perhaps not even in the same denomination. The classic example here is the idea of baptism. That is, we do not deny that our Presbyterian friends are Orthodox believers, but we disagree on baptism. That is, they believe in infant baptism, and we believe in believer's baptism. And so we have separate churches and separate denominations. Likewise, when it comes to the Methodist church, they believe in sprinkling, whereby we believe in immersion. And because of that, we have separate churches and separate denominations, but we do not deny that they are believers. And then there is a third tier of doctrines. This tier is the doctrines that we can disagree on while at the same time being in the same church. That is, we can have fellowship one with another even within a specific local church while disagreeing on this. We're going to see in the weeks ahead that the visible and physical return of Christ is a tier one doctrine. That is, we must believe that Jesus is coming again. However... The details of his coming are third tier. That is, we can disagree on how he is coming back. Now, obviously, not everyone is going to agree with that. There are some churches that have third tier return of Christ in their title and in their doctrines. And therefore, they would say in no uncertain terms that you cannot be a member of that church if you do not agree with that. And so we are going to disagree on what is first, second, and third. But what I'm saying this morning is we're going to talk about those first tier. And I hope we can come to some agreement on it. And so a lot of these churches disagree with us on these things, but certainly not on these first tier. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning is that Scripture is inspired. Paul makes that very clear in verse 16 of our text. The inspiration of Scripture means, as the ESV says, it is breathed out by God. We use the term inspire to say that something has moved us in a certain way. That poem inspired me. That book inspired me. But here we're using the term to think about the fact that God breathed out the very things that He said. We recognize that they are written by human authors. That is, that God used human authors. He used their personalities, He used their backgrounds, He even used their research. But ultimately, he used them to say what he wanted to say. And though there are various theories about this, about how it exactly occurred, we don't have the time to go into those this morning, suffice it to say that God breathed out, inspired the very things that he wanted to say. And there is so much evidence for this that it is hard to deny, though certainly many tried to do that. From the many, thus says the Lord in the Bible, to the testimony of Jesus and the apostles, both in which, the way in, which they, in which they used the Old Testament, to the clear statement that is before us, the inspiration of Scripture is very well grounded. So certainly the Bible claims to be inspired, not just here, but in many other places. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus spoke with authority, adding his words to the words of the Old Testament. But I also want you to understand that Jesus himself believed the Bible to be inspired. He lived according to its conduct. He answered every temptation with a reference to the word of God. He submitted to the Old Testament in the fulfillment of his mission, knowing that it spoke of him and consciously striving to fulfill the very prophecies that spoke about him. He submitted to scripture in his controversies consistently answering the Pharisees and others like them with the word of God. Thus, it is inconceivable as a follower of Christ to hold a lower view of scripture than Jesus himself held, though many strive to do that. Now, that does not mean that if we both hold a high view of scripture, that we will come to the same conclusion on every particular text of scripture there are still going to be legitimate disagreements about what a particular scripture says even if we both hold a high view of scripture and we'll talk more about that in just a few moments and so while I I will admit that indeed the bible was written by men it was not written by men alone and it was not written by men primarily It was written by God who used men divinely inspired so that what we find in the Bible are indeed God's words, not men. And therefore, the Bible has authority. That's gonna be our ultimate conclusion this morning. As we come to the end in just a few moments, our conclusion is going to be that the Bible has authority over our lives. So number one, the Bible is inspired. Scripture is inspired. Number two, Scripture is inerrant, and that makes sense. Inerrancy is a word that means it is without error. God is a God of truth. He is not a God of falsehood or lies. And so it makes sense that if this book that we hold, either in printed form or digital, if this is God's word, inspired by God, it makes sense that it is inerrant. Because God is not going to inspire something that is full of errors. And so if we believe that God has spoken, then we can trust what he has said. And if we cannot, then we have much bigger problems than the word of God. Again, this is simply a logical conclusion. Since God has spoken, and God is a God of truth and not error, then what we hold in our hands is by nature a book that is inerrant. Now you understand that this applies to the original manuscripts, not the copies that have been taken down and handed to us. We have thousands of ancient manuscripts that are preserved, making the Bible the most, beyond any doubt, the most well-attested ancient document that we can ever have. There is no other ancient document that even comes close to the number of manuscripts that we have of the Bible. And the earliest manuscripts we have are from the second and third century, which makes this a very early manuscript indeed. But we do know, and I'm just being honest with you, we know that there are variants in the manuscripts. In fact, we spent uh, one of our Wednesday nights, uh, one of our summer Wednesday night series on the various manuscripts and the variants in those manuscripts. So we know that there are variants, that, that is, there are differences in the various manuscripts that make up what we have. Sometimes those variants, as I said earlier, are because copyists, uh, copyists made errors. That is, they they were they were copying things down. You understand this was made by hand. They didn't have a copier. They didn't have cut and paste. And so they manually copied one manuscript to another. And therefore at times they made errors. At other times they thought they were correcting something and therefore they intentionally made a change. But regardless, we know that the Bible we hold in our hands is a very accurate copy of the original. There are whole sections of biblical studies that are designed to figure out which manuscript is accurate and which might have been in error. But there is no doubt that we have a reliable manuscript backing up our English version of God's Word so that you don't have to worry, as long as you have a good translation, you don't have to worry that what you hold in your hand is an extremely, extremely accurate version or translation of God's Word. And for that we ought to be extremely grateful. Because historically, that has not always been the case. In other words, historically there were people who did not have not only the Bible in their their native language, even as some still don't, but not a good translation. But we do have that. And so if Scripture is inspired and inerrant, then the whole idea of Scripture alone, which is what one of the five pillars that the reformers argued for. The whole idea of scripture alone is foundational. It is one of those rallying cries. Otherwise, if the Bible has errors, then the church's foundation upon it does not stand. And therefore, other things can rise to the top. That is, if the Bible is not God's word inspired and inerrant, then tradition or the word of the priest or the preacher can rise to the forefront. But if the Bible is inspired and inerrant, then these other things fall to a lesser place. And that is why in our Baptist faith, the message, we say that the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. That is, it is not my word that takes precedence. It is the word of God. So number one, scripture is inspired. And it follows then that scripture is inerrant. And number three, that means that scripture is clear. Again, this is a logical argument. If God is going to go to the, the, to the ends of revealing himself through a written word, then we can be sure that that word is going to be clear. That is, we can understand what it has to say. If God is going to communicate to us, then it makes sense to conclude that God would make it clear for us to understand. And that's why in verses 16 and 17, Paul can say that this word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God might be complete or competent, equipped for every good work. That can only be true if the word of God is clear, that is able to be understood. Now, if we go back to the Protestant Reformation... Rome was intent on keeping the Bible out of the hands of the ordinary person. That is, Rome believed that the ordinary believer could not understand the Bible. And therefore, it was relegated to priests to stand in front of the people on a regular basis and interpret the Bible for them. But what Luther, Martin Luther, understood when he went to a monastery was that even the monks in the monastery did not accurately understand or know the Word of God. And so how could they be expected to teach it to others? Furthermore, the Mass was spoken in Latin, which most people could not understand. And so they did not have the Word of God in front of them. They did not have the Word of God in their own language. And the man who was standing in front of them speaking on a given weekend did not speak in their language. So they couldn't understand any of it. And as a result, Martin Luther and others began to come to the conclusion that the people needed the word of God in their language. And so Martin Luther translated the word of God into German. And then a man by the name of William Tyndall came along and he, at the risk of his own life, interpreted the word of God into English so that people could have it. He was convinced that the word of God needed to be read by the people of God so that they could grasp what God was saying. Now, this does not mean that every portion of the Word of God is as clear as every other portion. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read the book of Ezekiel. And you'll come to the conclusion that the Word of God might be confusing at some points. Or we could add the book of Revelation. You've just finished briefly studying that in Sunday school. And you would say, well, I don't totally understand the book of Revelation. Well, I don't either. And so there are parts of the word of God that are difficult for us to understand. But what I'm saying is overall, the message of the Bible is clear so that we can come to an understanding of who God is and what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean we're always going to understand everything the Bible says. In fact, if we go back to Martin Luther's day, allegorizing was was the prominent theme there. That is, they, they thought the Bible said all kinds of different things. And Martin Luther came along and said, no, we need to understand the literal text of the Bible. What did the original author intend to write to the original audience? A historical, literal approach to the Word of God. And that became the norm. But of course, now that has changed as well, and people are applying it any way they want. They're saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but... And on and on they go. Here again, though the terminology may be different, the problem remains. What does the Bible mean to me has replaced what did the Bible mean when it was written? And then we move forward to contextualizing it in our own day. But out of this belief that Scripture is clear flowed a belief that we continue to hold dear, and that is a belief called the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that every believer can read and interpret the Word of God for themselves. That is, you do not need a priest. You do not need a pastor in order to read and interpret Scripture for you. Every believer, through the Holy Spirit of God, has the means by which he or she can read the Bible and understand it, at least enough to be saved. Now, that does not mean that we don't need teachers. It does not mean, as some people seem to conclude, that we don't need the church. Notice that when I said the priesthood of all believers that that is plural. It is not singular. That is the priesthood of the believer, meaning I don't need anybody else. I've got everything I need on my own. And again, that's what many people seem to believe. I don't need the church. I don't need a pastor. I don't need a Sunday school teacher. I can just do it by myself. That's not what this doctrine means. What this doctrine means is that all of us together have the everything we need to interpret the word of God and we do it together as the body of believers. And that goes against what Rome taught years ago, and that is that you needed the priest. So we understand that the Bible is clear. Not that we understand everything that the Bible says, but that scripture as revealed and inspired by God is clear enough so that we can understand who God is, and therefore we can be saved. God has provided a plan of salvation He has revealed that plan of salvation to us through his word, and it is clear enough for us to understand as we read the Bible. Now, on the other hand, we also understand that the depth of the Bible is so deep that we can read it all of our lives and never fully understand everything that is here. But that's a sermon for another day. Right now, we're talking about the fact that scripture is clear. So number one, scripture is inspired. It is breathed out by God. Number two, that means that scripture is inerrant. God is not going to make errors in what he reveals. And number three, again, all of this is logical. If God has inspired an inerrant word, then it is going to be clear. That is, we are going to be able to understand it. And then fourthly, scripture is sufficient. By this, we mean that it speaks not to every area of our life, The Bible is not an economics textbook. It does speak about money. It does speak about how to earn it and how to save it and even how to invest it. But it's not fundamentally an economics textbook. It is not a science book. It does speak to science, and when it does speak to science, it is accurate. But it is not primarily a science textbook. So what we mean when we say the sufficiency of Scripture is we mean that it contains all things necessary for salvation and for the Christian life. And as a result, nothing needs to be added to it and nothing needs to be taken from it. There is no need for further or extra biblical revelation. Again, if we go back to history, after the Reformation, something called the Enlightenment came along. This was the age of reason. Human reason was elevated as a sufficient source for knowledge and achievement. And along with this came the corresponding rejection of the belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. And this age of reason continues with the belief that you and I are backwards in thinking that this Bible that we hold in our hands is the book of God. Written so many years ago, this Bible, many people would say we are ignorant to think this way that it is the only sufficient guide to life and godliness. Scripture also continues to be under attack with all that we've discussed. The opponents have changed, perhaps. It's no longer the tradition of the church that is held up as equal to the Word of God. It is certainly not the priest or the pastor that is held up as equal to the Word of God. But instead, it is now the individual person. We now hold ourselves up as equivalent to or even above the Word of God because we're living in a day and age where a distrust of organized religion is rampant. This has gone so far as to insist that Christianity isn't even a religion. It's just a relationship, some people say. And so this enlightenment brought a critical attitude toward all authority external to the individual, and we continue to reap its consequences. And so now, in many ways, it is you and I who stand over, against, and above Scripture. It is you and I, the individual, many people believe, who can tell the Bible what it says or does not say. Who are you, or who is God even, to tell me how to live my life? And this mantra may be worlds apart from, the, from what the Reformers were fighting, but it's the same mentality. Again, you've heard people say this. I know what the Bible says, but... And as soon as they add that little word, they are now putting themselves over and above the word of God. It is not the Bible that has authority, but it is I who have authority. I know what the Bible says, but... I'm going to decide what's right and what is wrong. It is my personal beliefs that are more important. It is my personal experience that is more important. We need to understand that if the Bible is inspired, and if the Bible is inerrant, and if the Bible is clear, and if the Bible is sufficient, then it is not I who stand over the Bible, but it is the Bible who stands over me, which leads to our final point, and it is the finale, and that is scripture is authoritative. If scripture is authoritative, it means that it must be read, it must be studied, something we talk about all the time. That is why we spend the vast majority of our worship service opening up the word of God and seeing what it has to say. That is why we spend the bulk of our Sunday school hour opening up the word of God and seeing what it has to say. Doing so acknowledges that we believe the Bible has authority in our lives and we stand ready to submit to its teaching. Therefore, it must be read, it must be studied, and both of these things must be done with a view toward obedience. We don't twist the Word of God into saying what we want it to say. We don't justify our own beliefs by creatively changing what the Bible has to say so that we don't feel guilty about our lifestyle. If this Bible is indeed our authority then we seek honestly and faithfully to understand what it has to say and to submit our lives to it. If we merely know what it says but refuse to do what it says, again, we are proving that we are the ones in authority over the Word of God rather than the, the opposite. Finally, it means not only must we read and study the Word of God and ultimately doing those things with a view toward obeying the Word of God, but it means we must continue to proclaim the Word of God. Perhaps you've looked forward in your text there to the very next passage. Chapter 4 in 2 Timothy. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. Now again, he's just talked about the authority of the word of God. And therefore, he goes right forward then to saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And what does it say in verse 2? Preach the word. He tells Timothy, if this is the authority, and it is, then we have a responsibility to proclaim the word of God. And he goes on to talk about the fact that the time has come when people will not hear what you have to say. He says to Timothy, there's coming a time, and indeed that time has arrived, when people will want all kinds of other things. But you, Timothy, must continue to preach the word. And that is what we strive to do here. We strive to make sure that we continue to preach the word of God. In a day and age when that is not the common thing to do. In a day and age when that is not the popular thing to do. In a day and age when people will say, well, that's not what's going to attract people. If you want to grow the church, then you've got to do some more creative things. You've got to magnify testimonies, and testimonies are good, but they're not the authoritative word of God. You've got to be more entertaining and more charismatic. That's what's gonna draw people. But no, Paul says you must continue to preach the word. That may not draw people, but that is the way to go about it. And so I sometimes have to ask ourselves, are we bored with the Bible? Are we saying to ourselves we need more creative means in order to attract people and bring them to church? Are we hungry to hear and read the Bible? I mentioned William Tyndall to you a few moments ago. He risked his life in order to translate the Bible into English so that people could read it for themselves. Are we then hungry to come to hear the word? Are we hungry to read the word? I'm afraid Amos's words have come true. Amos said there's a famine, not a famine of bread and water, but a famine for the word of God. That is, we simply don't desire it like we once did. We have it in our own language. We have multiple copies in our homes. We have it on our digital devices. But I'm asking, are we hungry to hear the word of God and submit to its authority? Here's what our Baptist faith and message says about the Bible. Let me read it to you. The Holy Bible was written by men. And by the way, this is point number one in the Baptist faith and message. And it's because of what I said earlier. If we don't hold to this, anything else falls apart. Everything else falls apart. But here's what our Baptist faith and message says about the scriptures. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth for without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. Did you hear that? The true center of Christian union. This is what unites us. And if we do not hold to this, we are not united, but we are indeed divided. And therefore, it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. You and I cannot follow Christ unless we hold to his Scriptures. You and I cannot love Christ and obey him unless we know what his word says. So we must come to this first conclusion, this doctrine that defines us, that scripture is authoritative. Has God said? Absolutely he has. And he has said it in his word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us. And you have spoken to us in and through your word. There are so many in our day who want extra biblical revelation. They're looking for signs and visions and dreams. And yet you have spoken to us. I pray that we would open your word and hear you speak. And that in hearing you speak, we would desire to obey you. Thank you that you have spoken to us That you have reached out to us, revealing yourself to us. And that that revelation is clear and sufficient. So that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And therefore, may we submit to the authority of your word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.